Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Thank you, Victor, for reading the scripture. Uh, At City on a Hill, we uh, believe in God's word. We believe it is inerrant. We believe it is authoritative and it is life-giving to us. So as a church, we set ourselves under the scriptures. And so, in fact, the very first line of our membership covenant talks about how we submit ourselves to the scripture as the final arbiter on all things because we believe God's word is what gives us hope and life. And so thank you for reading that this morning. Um, as, As a new church, it's important that we remember our values as a church. And so our values are the gospel, community, and mission. And we talk about the gospel every week. We're, not, we're never moving past that. We're never moving past what Christ did for us on the cross because it is about what Jesus did to pay for our sins, to help us have a new relationship with God. And if you've not trusted Jesus alone, through faith alone, to take away your sin, we would love to talk with you about what that means for you to do so. Um, but it also has implications for how we live. Everything in our lives is changed by what Christ has done for us. And so every area of our lives is touched by the gospel because we believe Jesus changes everything. Secondly, community. One of those things that he changes is community, that we're brought into a new family in Christ, uh, that and this family transcends all of the differences uh, that, that we have. And it transcends our culture. It transcends what neighborhood we grew up in. It transcends our experiences and gives us hope in life as a part of this new family. And we experience that together in relationship. And then lastly, mission. God has given us a mission in his world to make him known. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to live on mission so that others know about him and so that the world is a better place because of him. And so those are our values as a church. Now, a few announcements before we get uh, before we get started with the sermon this morning. Again, I mentioned we are a new church. Um, we well, you know, started back in September. We've had f- five, this is our fifth service in a row weekly. Before that, we only had a few in-person services. And so you can imagine it's tough to build relationships over a computer screen. So we need as much opportunity as we can to build relationships with others. And a couple of those ways to do that coming up are our men's and women's retreats. They are going to be virtual, uh, but they're, they're gonna be very life giving. So uh, ladies, if you're looking to meet some other women in our church coming up on May 15th, uh, there's going to be a virtual women's retreat. Uh, the, I believe the uh, deadline to sign up for that is this week. So make sure that you get signed up for that so that we can prepare uh, best for you. Uh, the men's retreat is also going to be virtual on Friday night, May 28th and uh, Saturday, May 29th. We are going to have a kickball game at the end of that. There's going to be some pride involved with that against all the other City on a Hill congregations. And so that will be in person. I don't think you can virtually place kickball. So that will be um, in person. And then lastly, I mentioned membership. We are having our next membership class on May 21st. That's a Friday from 7.30 to 9.30. That's gonna be on Zoom. So if you are have, are interested in membership and you've not gone through that membership class, be sure to be a part of that. And may, even if you're not interested in membership yet or you're not sure, this is a great way to discover who we are, some of our distinctives and what makes us uh, who we are as a church. Uh, now this morning, we're gonna be wrapping up the Life of David series. We began this series a few months ago. I'm looking at David's life. And this has been a bit of a different series. You know, typically when I teach through a series, it's a, it's a book of the Bible. We start at the beginning and move our way to the end. And we've kind of been hopping through several different books, uh, zeroing in on uh, David's life. 
And as we look at David's life, uh, we saw all sorts of, uh, of different aspects of his life that we can really zero in on and see uh, what God, how God works in us in the same ways. And so just to give you kind of a picture of where we're going over the, actually through the end of the year, uh, starting next week, we're gonna begin a four-week series through the book of Jude. Uh, the book of Jude is that book, maybe you skip right before you jump into the weird stuff in Revelation. Um, we're going to do that. Uh, starting in the summer, we're going to uh, be looking at the Apostles' Creed. So uh, the Apostles' Creed is, is one of the earliest um, creeds or confessions of the early church. And we would say that the content of that is kind of what it means to be a Christian. You got to believe in these things to be a Christian. And so we'll, we'll unpack that this summer, looking at various texts. And then in the fall, we're going to uh, tackle the book of Ephesians before we hit Advent in, uh, in December. Now, as we wrap up uh, this look at David's life, um, and David is at the end of his life. And as you get toward the end of your life, you begin to kind of consider what life is truly about. And so David is kind of starting to see how everything in his life is fitting together. All of his experiences, kind of like puzzle pieces. And he sees how each one fits with the other. And he realizes that nothing in his life that's happened has been by mistake, that God has sovereignly led him to this place. Everything that has happened has been according to God's will. He sees that maybe some of the big stuff that happened wasn't as big as he thought, that maybe the, some of the smaller stuff was actually more formative than he understood. And he begins to consider the kind of life that he's lived. And as we look at David's life, I hope that you've seen yourself in David. You've seen some aspects of David's life that you can see some, some of the ways with the highs and the lows. But what I hope you do when you look at the life of David is that you don't see yourself as the hero, Ultimately, David is not the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the Bible. In fact, if we look at the, as we look at the Old Testament, we realize there is no hero but Jesus. These are deeply flawed people, which gives us hope for how we are called to live a life that gives God glory. But all things considered, when you think about the kind of life that David lived, David lived a pretty great life. He lived, by all means, a good life. And so when we think about this, the question that we ask ourselves as we wrap up the series and look at David's life is, what does greatness look like? What does it mean to live a great life? There's something inside all of us that wants to pursue greatness. We want to do something great. We want to do something important. We want our lives to matter, have a life that's well-lived. We want to fulfill the purpose that we've been given. In fact, if you're under the age of 40, you were probably told at some point that you can be whatever you want to be. Anybody, anybody ever told that? You can be whatever you want to be. And there was like a star that flew across in the NBC commercial. Anybody remember that? You can be whatever you want to be because something inside of us says that we are called to be great. And in fact, I do think this idea of greatness is woven into creation. God created everything and he said that it was good. And we look back at the creation story. He created the heavens of the earth. He said it was good. The animals, all of these things were created. He said they were good. But when he got to man, he said, it is very good. And that word good means to fulfill its purpose, to fulfill its God-given design. And so we were made for something great. And so if you sum up David's life and kind of the common theme of David's life and the great life that he lived, I believe the reason that David was great is because he lived his life in light of the grace of God. 
that David's life was shaped by God's grace. So we see David go from a shepherd to a king. We see him go from the least to the greatest, from small beginnings to eternal impact, all by the grace of God. And so J.D. Greer sums up David's life like this, and he actually says this is what he believes defines a great life. He says, a great life is lived in response to God's grace with the kingdom of God as the priority. Again, I'm gonna say that one more time. A great life is lived in response to God's grace with the kingdom of God as the priority. See, when we rightly see ourselves in light of who God is and what he has done, we can truly live the life that we were designed to live. And we begin to see that greatness is not about making a name for ourselves, but greatness is a life shaped by the grace of God with the glory of God in mind. So what does this great life that that's, it lived in response to God's grace with the kingdom of God as a priority, what does all this entail? So I think there are three aspects that we see from the end of David's life that, that talk about what it looks like to do this well. The first thing that we need to do is we need to learn to celebrate well, to celebrate well. What we see here starting in First uh, Chronicles 29, uh, verse 20, is a celebration There's a celebration that's going on that's depicted as worship. And so worship at its very root is a celebration. It's a celebration of God's grace. In verse 20, we see that David calls together an assembly of people. He calls them together to bless the Lord. Now that word bless is not like in the South where I grew up where you tell somebody, bless your heart. That is not a compliment. Uh, That means they think you're an idiot. That is not what's happening here. He's saying, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, which means to worship him. See, at the very core, what is worship? And if I were to ask ask you to answer that question out loud, you would probably say things such as singing. You might say prayer, Bible reading, meditation on God's word. And all of those are ultimately forms of worship. They're, They're expressions of worship. But worship is first a disposition of the heart. It's something that emanates from within us. It's a giving of ourselves in celebration toward something. Ian Hamilton, this incredible Scottish theologian said, true worship begins with the giving of ourselves wholly and unreservedly to the Lord as living sacrifices, as men and women who are dead to themselves, but alive to God. We are always worshiping something. We were created to worship. This idea of being created with a purpose, created for greatness, we were created to celebrate. We celebrate things all the time. And to give you a visual of what it's like for us to always be worshiping, imagine a fire hose that's just cranked all the way on. That fire hose is pointing in some direction at all times. And so what we do when we worship is we're taking that celebration, we're taking that adoration, and we're pointing it heavenward toward God. We're taking what we were designed to do and what we naturally do, and we're pushing that towards the Lord. So praise, our proper response to grace is praise. It's blessing God. It's worship. It's celebration. And we see this in verse 20 where an homage is given, where they says that the people give an homage to the Lord. They are responding to God's grace. They're recognizing who God is. It says here, they call him the God of our fathers. They're remembering God's past faithfulness to their fathers. They call him Lord, signifying this special relationship. They're responding to the graciousness of God. 
See, inner love, this is what, what worship looks like, is inner love is displayed outwardly. We see this in verse 21. Verse 21, we see that they offered sacrifices to the Lord and on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and a thousand lambs with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. So we see two things happening here in this text. We see sacrifices, in other words, the, the, the payment for sin. And then secondly, we see these burnt offerings, which are a little different. They're not paying for sin. It's actually an expression of worship. It's this expression of deep devotion. And we see, again, those thousand bulls, thousand rams, thousand lambs happening in abundance. So what does this tell us about our worship? That it should be a celebration, that we rejoice that our sin is forgiven. And this is a different point in redemptive history. Back before Christ, people would pay for their sins by taking an animal to the altar and it being sacrificed for their sin. But we rejoice in Jesus who took our penalty on himself for us once and for all. We rejoice in the fact that our sins have been forgiven. And when we worship, we rejoice in the finished work of the cross for us. And so I mentioned this at the beginning of the gathering, and I don't think I could say this too much. Do we realize the privilege that we get in being here today? Do we understand what we get in being here? That we don't have to gather as the church, we get to gather as the church that God would accept us, that we could be called to worship, that we could usher unto his throne and that he would receive us because Jesus has taken everything that separates us from God. We rejoice in this. But in the same way, we also give a type of burnt offering. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is a living sacrifice. We are not personally burnt sacrifices. Thank you, Lord. Um, this is a living sacrifice. It means that our entire lives are to be lived in worship and celebration to God. This is why I said earlier that the gospel applies to everything, that the hope of Jesus changes everything, that we're to live our lives in celebration. But often like the saints in the Old Testament, our biggest problem is that we can go through the motions of worship with a heart that's far from God. Like they would go through sacrifices and festivals, we can draw into worship and we can come to God in prayer and we can pick up our Bible to read it, yet our minds and our hearts are somewhere else. There's this disconnect between our head and our heart and our hands that we know when we hear God's word, but we don't live and we apply God's word in how we live. And it's usually not our entire lives. It's often a blind spot. It's often one particular area of our lives where it just doesn't seem that the word of God is getting in and it's digging root in our lives. And so what you imagine, it's kind of like living in a house and you, and you live in this house and there's that one outlet that's never worked. Anybody live in a house like that where you just have that one outlet that just, it hasn't worked since the beginning of time or electricity. And so there are two options you can you can kind of go about to, to work with this outlet, you can either trace it down and figure out where the disconnect in your house is, or you just kind of work around it. And I think what most of us do when it comes to worshiping and celebrating God is we kind of just work around it. We don't actually figure out where the disconnect is, but God wants our whole lives to be connected to him in celebration. 
We also see that this speaks to the way that we celebrate as a community. Verse 20 says that all the assembly is gathered. This means all of Israel, every man, woman, and child is gathered together. They're worshiping the God. They're celebrating together. What we see about worship is that worship is not a solo venture. It's not just about you and God. You were, if you've trusted Jesus, you have been saved from your personal sin into a corporate reality as the body of Christ, a new family in him. So when you worship, when you seek to glorify God, it encourages others to do the same. I'm sure there were some people who showed up that day who were on the struggle bus, right? They were on the Old Testament struggle bus, like an Old Testament struggle camel. I don't know, whatever it was. They were struggling that day. They showed up. And somebody else, by praising God, they were in a good spot, led them to doing the same. There are gonna be times that your faith encourages me when I'm weak. And there's gonna be times when my faith encourages you when you're just having a really, really rough day. We do this together. But it's not just that. What we see here depicted is a literal party. They are, look, verse 22, they eat and drank, or ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. Let me, let me translate that into 21st century. They threw down, like it was a party. They are celebrating together with great gladness. Look, celebrating well is not about only giving ourselves fully to God, but it's also about giving ourselves fully to each other. Look, community only works if we give ourselves fully to it. Relationships only work if we give ourselves to it. And as a new church, we have to, this is priority because we're building this. We're building this culture of love and care together. Let me, let me explain what the worst community, if you wanna be in a really bad community group, let me explain what you need to do. Never open up, never invest in people, never commit to have fun. If we do that, we will have the absolute worst community possible. But if we say, you know what? I'm just gonna give myself to this. I'm just gonna be all in with these people while I'm here. We'll find life. Look, you can make anything fun. I made an 80s murder mystery party fun one time. I had to dress up as a jock with a, with a, like a letterman jacket. That wasn't my vibe at all. And I went all the way over the top and had some of the most fun I've ever had with some people that I love. See, our gospel, our, our community groups are meant to be places where the gospel is embodied, where we model it. And look, there are so many barriers in our city to, the, to, to this type of giving ourselves community. One is just transience. Look, sometimes, it feels like sometimes people are here and then they're gone the next minute. But if we say, you know what, I'm not gonna invest in people because they're just not gonna be around, or maybe I don't feel like I'm gonna be around, so I'm not gonna invest in relationships. We miss, in what, God's do, miss what God's doing in us today. So we need to be all in. Look, community's not easy, it's messy. But we have to learn to celebrate in the midst of the everyday stuff, birthdays, Taco Tuesday, whatever it might be, let's learn to celebrate. So if we wanna live a life that glorifies God in response to his grace, we need to celebrate well. Secondly, we need to honor others well. We need to honor well. The Bible does something really unique. The Bible does this thing where it will honor people, but ultimately not make it about them. It will honor others, but not make them the point. See, if we're living in response to God's grace, we can honor others well, because it's not ultimately about them, it's about what God is doing in them. It's about what God is doing there. We see this in verse 20 again. We see the, the people not only paid an homage to the, to, the, uh, to the Lord, but they also paid an homage to the king. 
They paid an homage to David and all that God had done in David's life. And if you look at verses 26 through 30, we see how David, his, his accomplishments are detailed. We see here that multiple books from, uh, from Samuel the seer and Nathan the prophet and Gad the seer, these were the books of First and Second Samuel and the Kings and the Chronicles were all about what God had done through David and his descendants. It was honoring them. Now, look, as we talked about, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, overlook their shortcomings. We've, we've talked a lot about their failures. We said the Bible doesn't overlook the mess of our hearts. But what it also does, and, it, and it look, and if you look at David's life, he had all sorts of stuff going on at the end. He had conspiracy theories. He was getting older and he just, he wasn't the king he used to be. But here's what the grace of God does. It allows us to believe that sin is actually forgiven. It allows us to believe that sin is forgiven and that we can be merciful to not bring up people's pasts to not constantly bring that up. And we can actually praise God for how he uses imperfect people. The other thing with David is there's no competition here. David doesn't feel an ounce of competition with Solomon, so much so that he can go through Solomon's coronation while he's still alive. That's a lot of confidence, right? To say, I'm gonna honor him even though he's still alive. And we see here that this is actually his second coronation. There was this weird thing that happened in in 1 Kings 1 where his other, I told you, David's life is a mess. Uh, Adonijah was trying to kill David and take over the throne. So they did this really rushed coronation with Solomon. It's kind of like the 25th Amendment in the United States. Like, you know, it's kind of the line of succession. If something happened to David, they wanna make sure Solomon could take over. But this was the real thing. This was with all the bells and whistles. He celebrates Solomon because he does, and honors him because he doesn't see him as a threat. Look, you don't have to lose for me to win. We, we can honor well. David honored Solomon. What happened with Solomon when David honored him? Well, he flourished. He actually did better than David did. David was a man of war. Solomon was a man of peace. The Bible carries on this pattern of honoring. And if you look at Paul's letters, and we'll see this again in the fall in Ephesians, he always took time to honor other people. Paul didn't spend the entire letter saying, look how great I am as an apostle. He said, let me tell you about Epaphroditus. And let me tell you about Timothy. And let me tell you about Barnabas. And let me tell you about John Mark and how the grace of God is working in all of these people has this pattern of honor and glory. So how do we honor well? See, our response to God's grace is that we're so secure in who we are in Christ that we don't need adulation from others so we can freely give it to them. That we can freely tell of how God is at work in other people. This happens in community group. I believe that we need to be close enough to people to see how God is at work in them. And we need to set aside time, intentional time to say, hey, Here's how I see God working in you and and honoring those people. It's proactive encouragement. If you see somebody doing something, say it. Look, thank someone here today. I'm gonna embarrass a couple of people and they're gonna hate this. Um, But we have some people who serve our church faithfully hour upon hour upon hour. I mean, I think just about everybody here serves in some capacity. But I think about how Matt serves with worship and all of our organization, Amy with women's discipleship, Heather with kids, Rick with with avian tech, Kayla over making sure that our registration, all that goes smoothly and numerous other people. And just... Just say, we just say, thank you. Thank you for how God is working through you. We wanna build this culture of honor, not because we need attaboys as, as God's people, but because we see God at work in people.
Lastly, we need to steward well. We need to steward what we have well. Now, typically when we think of stewarding, Rick's over there, he's gonna kill me. He's like, why did you say my name out loud? Um, when we think of stewarding, we tend to think of, of, of using money wisely. But the word steward means to use anything wisely. And often when, when we think of this, we, we think of, you know, how do we steward our, our opportunities? How do we steward our abilities? All of these things, David took full advantage of all of the things that God had given him, all the opportunities, all the intellect, all the, you know, the, the tactical prowess, he took full advantage of that. Responding to God's grace is taking all that God has given you and using it to advance his kingdom. It's taking all that God has given you and asking yourself, how can I use this for his glory? And David did this. We see this in verse 27, that David had this really long reign. He reigned for 40 years, for, uh, for seven years in Hebron, 33 years in Jerusalem, um, that he lived to a good old age, that he had riches and he had honor um, and he had, he had all the things that he had done. In verses 23 through 25, he passes this off to his son. It's like, imagine someone passing down the family business. He had done incredibly well. But the thing we have to remember about stewarding is that this is not a testament to David's awesomeness. This is not saying how awesome David is. This is saying how awesome God is and how he works through David. Because the thing about stewarding is it's not ultimately yours. It's God's. All the gifts, all the abilities that David had were God-given to him. Even, look, even Solomon, what's it say about his throne? It says in verse 22, then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord. This wasn't even David's throne. It was God's throne. We steward what God has given us and we do it well. What has God given you? Maybe it's the ability to understand complex math. Like you just look at math problems and they just solve themselves. Maybe uh, you see beauty where other people don't. Maybe you can take chaos and bring it to order. Maybe you're really good at sports and you're just hyper-coordinated. Did you make yourself tall? Did you make yourself with the ability to run fast? Did you wire your brain that way? No. All of these things are God-given to you. They're gifts. God wired you that way. And for us to act like we're the ones that just manifested themselves, those things in our lives is incredibly arrogant. And see, Solomon started well. He started really well. He lived his life in response to grace, but then ultimately he forgot that all of these things were God-given. See, anything you have, any ability, any opportunity, any drive in you is something God give, gave to you. And it's your, it's for you to respond in grace is to steward that well. See, how you use the gifts of God matter. We, we wanna use the gifts that God has given us for the good of other people. And we see this in David. David was a generally a really good king. And for most of his life, he sought to bless others in such a way that they, they saw him as this benevolent king. That's why when they talked about the Messiah, everybody looked back to a king like David because under David, everyone else flourished. David leveraged his life uh, for others to flourish and the question is, is thinking about the way you could steward the grace of God in your life is how are you leveraging your life so that other people flourish? That the gifts given to you were for the benefit of others and to use them solely for yourself is theft of what God has given you. 
Imagine that you're an investment advisor and, and the expectation is that you take someone else's investment and that you take it and you shape it and you make money from it. If you were to just use that money for yourself, you just take that money and pocket it or you were to bury it in a hole like in the parable of the talents, what's gonna happen? You're gonna get fired because you didn't do what you were supposed to with what was given you. There are two wrong ways that you can use the gifts that God has given you. One of them that we tend to do is we hoard them. We say, I'm just gonna use these for myself. I'm gonna use these to, to make myself look great, to make a name for myself, to make money, to build security and comfort in my life. The other is to ignore them, is to bury them in that hole and say, you know what? I'm not gonna actually take advantage of all that God has given me. So how do you use your job to bless other people? How do you take your ability to organize and to bring people together to make your street a safer place? How do you use your time and your money to step into broken places and bring shalom and to make peace, to make it look like the kingdom? We have some folks in, in our church who foster and care for the, 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 the very much the most vulnerable. We have a family right now that just took a five-day-old child into their home. And we're, we're so, they're not here with us today because they're, they're home with that little one. And we're so thankful that they're doing that. That's a way that we step into what's broken, leverage the opportunity and the space and the abilities that we have to love other people. In Boston, it means loving the city. It means saying, I'm not gonna use the city, but I'm, I'm gonna ask, how can I bless the city? How can I serve the city? So responding to grace in that way, saying, I'm not gonna use, I'm gonna contribute. I'm gonna invest, I'm gonna stay. I'm, I'm gonna make decisions for my life that are not just about getting more or having more comfort, but asking how can I leverage where I'm at for the sake of other people? How can I make much of Jesus here? See, I mentioned earlier that Solomon ended poorly. So much so that God eventually took the kingdom from his son. And we see this through David's line, this, this constant barrage of just, of just failure after failure after failure. But we also see God's grace. There's grace for people like Solomon and, there's, and David, and there's grace for people like us who fail to do these things well. The culmination of, of David's line at the very end of it is that we have faith that a king would come who is perfect, not like David, not like Solomon, but one who's truly great one who invested in eternity, that we saw all the earthly stuff that we have would fade. When we steward our lives in light of God's grace with the kingdom in mind, we begin to invest eternally. We think of our lives, not about what is here and what makes us great, look great here, but we realize that real greatness is found in life in Jesus, giving ourselves away for his glory. We understand that the greatest become servants. It's like the old pastor C.T. Studd said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And ultimately we see that Jesus lived this way. He lived his life in full celebration and worship to God. He honored others well, calling a bunch of ragtag people together to change the world and he was on a mission to steward every moment of his life to make God look great. So how do you need to respond to God's grace this morning? Maybe for you, it, you just need to go all in with Jesus. Like this, this is the day that you say, yes, Jesus, I will trust you, I'll submit my life to you. I'll believe that you took my sins. Maybe you need to be a, a person that learns to celebrate. Maybe you need to take the focus off yourself and put it onto others. Or maybe there's an area of your life you say, you know what, I could be using this for the glory of God and the good of others. Let's pray. 